Tonight's talk is the second of three for thinking through the question of messianism. But here, rather than just thinking about messianic ideas, which we began with last time, we're talking about messianic movements, and, and one in particular, the movement surrounding Shabtai Tzvi. Now, messianic movements are not actually something new in Jewish history. I, I remember the first time I was in Israel, it was 1990, I was in high school and went to the Western Wall, and I think my first visit to the Western Wall was when I had the interesting experience of meeting the Mashiach man of the Western Wall. I don't know if you recall in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this man, he was a, a very small man um, with a big beard and payas, and he would run around the, the, the Kotel area, and anytime people tried to take a picture, he would jump into it. So there's all sorts of uh, photographs in people's photo albums from their trips to Israel from that period where you'll see this little guy kind of jumping into the jumping into the pictures. And, and then he would always have a, um, a, a shofar in his hand and would just randomly at, at certain moments would, would blow the shofar and yell, Mashiach! And, and they have a song also. <laughs> I think this was before the beginning of that song. He would have loved it. And what was amazing was that this guy would, you know, sort of run around kind of declaring himself the Messiah and then, and then suggesting a donation for, uh, for, for tzedakah, uh, I believe directly to him. And <laughs> I, I said to my counselor, I was sort of scandalized, and I, I said to my counselor, I said, that man thinks he's the Messiah. And I was something between amused and disturbed. And my counselor said, don't worry, about 1% of the population of Jerusalem thinks they're the Messiah. <laughs> and in some ways that was truer than, than he might have imagined. There are no points in Jewish history where there isn't some kind of messianic ferment happening somewhere and where we don't find some kind of not just discussion of the idea of the Messiah, we see that in lots of places, but where there seems to be a real claim to be the Messiah happening somewhere with some number of people also thinking that that person is the Messiah. What's really interesting about the movement around Shabtai Tzvi in the mid-1600s, in fact, it was right around the year 1666, was that this was of an altogether different scale. Not since the time of Jesus has the Jewish world been rocked by a messianic movement of those dimensions. And just the sheer number of Jews who became caught up in this movement, which might have been upwards of 50% of the world Jewish population, Jewish communities from Yemen to Persia to North Africa to Europe, Holland, England, even the United States, well, it wasn't the United States at the time, the New World, we start to see substantial evidence of Jews being involved in this movement and having had at least a moment where they really believed that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah. So I want to talk about some of the ideas that inform these kinds of movements and then some of the impacts that movements, especially this one, seem to have had in Jewish history. So we talked last time about the question of the idea of messianism and how, how does the Messiah arrive? How does redemption arise? And there were a lot of different sort of competing notions of this, both in the Hebrew Bible that talks about the arrival of the Messiah, the Anointed One, and that seems to be different from the notion of the end of days, which is a more catastrophic uh, conception of the Messiah. And in rabbinic period, it seems that there's several different interpretations one could 
take towards understanding the notion of the Messiah and how one would conceptualize or talk about the, at the arrival of messianic redemption? What would messianic redemption look like? One question is, is it just something that happens at a set time? Um, and there were those who seemed to think there was a set time for the Messiah and that this was a fairly sort of fixed point in history that Judaism was building towards. Um, there were others who said that, no, it's perhaps based on Jewish actions. There's one passage from uh, the Gemara that we read last time that says that the Messiah will come only in a generation that is entirely worthy or in a generation that is entirely unworthy, that the Messiah would be ushered in by Jewish actions but by ones that are of one extreme or the other. But it seems that probably the most common approach to the arrival of the Messiah was a combination of both. There's one Talmudic passage that states, if the Jewish people are worthy, I will expedite the time of the Messiah's arrival. If not, it will occur at its appointed time. So this seems to imply that there is a time set for the arrival of the Messiah, but it's flexible. It can be, it could be somehow hastened through the virtuous actions of the Jewish people. So now, of course, if the Messiah has a set time for that arrival, and that time isn't known, then it's a secret. It's a secret. And secrets always beg for, they invite decoding. And so a secret time for the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah, invites speculation. It invites speculation about how to understand, how to uncover this set time that's somehow out there and perhaps in principle discoverable. And even though, as we mentioned last time, it's prohibited according to the Talmud to calculate the time of the arrival of the Messiah through the interpretation of scriptural passages, what does that imply, of course, is that it is in principle possible to calculate the time of the arrival of the Messiah. Um, so we find lots of people doing this. Lots and lots of rabbis do this. They try to calculate the time of the arrival of the Messiah. But Messianism, when understood as somehow responding to things happening to the Jewish people and things done by them, provides a way of reading Jewish history, reading world history, and reading Jewish experience. It, at least potentially, invites the placing of Jewish experience on the historical world stage within some kind of secret divine plan where there's a calculation being made about when the Messiah is to arrive and how Jewish responses to certain events in world history can potentially advance that time for the arrival of the Messiah. And it has a certain utility. It implies that Jewish experience is not futile, but rather can be understood as part of this transhistoric process that ultimately culminates in redemption. And in effect, the promise of messianic redemption is kind of like promising the end of the story at the beginning by saying it will go through a circuitous path. The time of its culmination can't be revealed, but nonetheless, that ultimately Jewish history will end up turning out as it should with the redemption of the Jewish people in some form. And so you can imagine a kind of hopeful narrative at play there. And moreover, you can imagine that this then reinforces the meaning, the power, and the relevance of rabbinic Judaism. It says that Jewish actions are not 
futile or pointless, but instead they're part of this broader historical process that will ultimately come to fruition. So this, this conception of the Messiah then gets connected in certain points in Jewish history with an idea that we talked about last time, the notion of the birth pangs of the Messiah or the footsteps of the Messiah. This was the idea that very, very bad historical moments might occur in Jewish history and that this is a sign of the approach in some time period, not always clear how, how quickly, but it's the sign of the approach of the Messiah. The Messiah is on his way as Jewish history encounters more trauma and more difficulty. And those moments of traumatic shock in Jewish historical experience have often been understood as being somehow connected to the historical arc of Jewish experience that culminates in the Messiah. So it gives a messianic meaning to Jewish history. Um, to take one example, the violence in Spain of 1391 and then the expulsion of 1492, as well as the forced conversion of Jews, about 10,000 of whom had left Spain and, and taken up residence in Portugal were forcibly converted in Lisbon in 1497. Um, this seems to have initiated a spate, not only of messianic speculation, but also of real messianic movements. Um, Solomon Moko and David Ruvaini, who traveled through uh, parts of um, Central Europe and the Mediterranean before um, ultimately being, being uh, executed um, and put to death by the, the Inquisition, um, they, they gained some supporters and some following. If you've ever been to the Jewish Museum in Prague um, or to the Pincus um, Synagogue in Prague, has anyone seen there's the, the, the robe worn by Solomon Milko and his flag, have you seen this? It's actually recently moved to the, the, Ch the Czech Jewish Museum in Prague. They moved it from the Pincus uh, Museum where admittedly I think that the, the robes are probably better preserved where they are now. This is a really interesting moment and it's not that atypical that there have been many, many such messianic movements but they were generally local in character and didn't spread across the entire Jewish world. So. Attitudes towards messianic movements, typically in Jewish history, we find that the rabbis resist them. And in some cases, the more powerful, elite, or wealthy classes of society also resist them. Um, and sometimes I think they use interesting strategies for trying to move people away from the more apocalyptic forms of messianism. Now remember last time we talked about the restorative versus the apocalyptic approaches to the Messiah. And the restorative vision is one that imagines the Messiah as something more primarily of the mundane world, in, but it's a moment where Jewish history returns to its pristine past, the Jewish people return to the land of Israel, the temple is rebuilt, and the, the, the kingdom of Israel is restored under a king from the line of David. And this is a more kind of uh, this worldly conception of the Messiah in which the world continues to function as it functions. Whereas the apocalyptic or utopian conceptions of the Messiah imagine the messianic redemption happening quite miraculously and not simply returning to a moment in Jewish history that was a good moment of Jewish independence, but instead is a completely different reality. It's one in which the world, the heavens, the earth, everything turns out differently and somehow enters a, 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 a new reality. 
And that conception, that more apocalyptic, disruptive conception of the Messiah probably was the kind that was more common among average Jewish people, that this is fueled in many ways, both by um, mystical literature and by agadic and midrashic literature within the rabbinic tradition. Whereas for the rabbinic leadership, they were more cautious about these conceptions of the Messiah, and they certainly were reluctant in many cases to endorse actual messianic movements. So one example would be Rashi, the famous Rashi rabbi Solomon Isaac of Troy. Um, he gave two years as possible moments when the Messiah might come based on calculations, uh, interpretations from certain passages in the book of Daniel. He gives 1352 and 1478 as possible years when the Messiah might come based on his reading of those texts. Now, for those of us who know when Rashi lived, what do you notice about the years 1352 and 1478? They're well after his time, like 300 years later. And what that says to me is that what he's suggesting is the Messiah is in the future. All right, it's not happening now. Don't think of this as something that is eminently happening on the historical plane in which you are living. And when we think about some of the ideas that are in, especially included in the more apocalyptic conceptions of the Messiah, we can, we can understand why the rabbinic leadership and other forms of elite power within Jewish communities tended to oppose messianic movements. Last time, Ari Katz mentioned that in his uh, orthodox yeshiva education, they literally never talk about messianic passages in the Bible or the Talmud, right? You guys didn't, you didn't study that. And I think many people have that experience. This is not part of your typical rabbinic Jewish education. And it seems that I think part of the reason why is that there's a tension within the messianic tradition itself with traditional normative halachic Judaism. There is um, an idea of the Torah of the age of the Messiah, the messianic Torah. And it's the notion that many of the restrictions of the Torah uh, and much of what halacha looks like in the pre-messianic age will be completely different in the messianic age that there will in fact be a transformation in the restrictions of the Torah. And so to usher in the time of the Messiah, to declare someone the Messiah, is in many ways to declare an end to a particular approach to halakha, to the rabbinic approach to halakha. And that tension is one that when it becomes a historical movement is deeply at odds with the normal, stable functioning of rabbinic Judaism. In the part, a later stratum of the Zohar, there's this notion of the Torah of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the Torah of the tree of life. And what they say is that the Torah of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a Torah that is composed of certain things that are permitted and re or certain laws that are required, and then other laws that are restrictions, which connote things that are prohibited. And that this dichotomy between the prohibited and the permitted is only characteristic of the Torah before the arrival of the, the Messiah. After the Messiah, 
then it is the Torah of the tree of life. And this is a Torah that does not entail restrictions. It's a Torah of the pure essence of the divine that's ultimately embodied in the full revelation of the true mysteries of the divine name. So this gives rise to a potential antinomianism. So yes, there's a question. Uh, but Masechet Sanhedrin, chapter 10, or sometimes it's nine, is a chapter that is devoted totally to the issues of Mashiach and Olam Abba, and which the Rambam had problem with, of course. Quite a bit, yes. And uh, so, and this is a lot of material. I know it's only one chapter, and we have 63 Masechtot, so it's, what is it, 1% or so, but still. It's even less. The rabbi still must have believed in it somehow. They may have put it aside, but they must have believed in it. They, they certainly did. They believed in the Messiah. They talk about the Messiah, even though Hillel doesn't believe them. He believes the Messiah is true, but over. Uh, but other rabbis clearly say that the, the Messiah will come. They say, perhaps let him come, but not in my day. Uh, but they are also, it's within that same rabbinic tradition that records many different and in some cases incompatible ideas about the Messiah that we see these ideas that the Torah will somehow be fundamentally transformed with the advent of the Messiah. And that reveals this tension between the notion of a stable rabbinic Jewish society and the Messiah. There's this antinomianism at the heart of the messianic moment. Uh, antinomian, of course, connoting the anti-legal uh, sentiment. And so antinomianism is often associated with messianic movements. Those who proclaim the Messiah to be the Messiah often mark their embrace of the Messiah by violating halakha, by showing halakha is no longer relevant. And this is, in fact, something we see with the, the rise of Christianity as well, that the embrace of Jesus as the Messiah is marked by an abrogation of the restrictions of the law. That in many ways, the um, rise of the Messiah entails the end of Judaism. And with the more apocalyptic conceptions of the Messiah, it also involves a kind of end of Jewish history. Gershom Sholem, the famous scholar of Kabbalah, but also the most important researcher for uncovering this aspect, very, very important aspect of Jewish history, and in particular, who wrote a, a book 10 times thicker than this on the, the, um, the, the, mo the movement of Shabtai Tzvi. He had a more generous publisher, <laughs> probably. Uh, in his work on, the, on Shabtai Tzvi, he notes, um, and I think he puts it very well, he says, redemption arises on the ruins of history according to these conceptions of the Messiah. And that this desire for the arrival of the Messiah is paradoxically an embrace of a traditional Jewish idea that wishes to usher in the end of Judaism. And for this reason, we find certain rabbis like Maimonides who were very resistant to any kind of apocalyptic messianic movement. He was the most rationalizing of the medieval authorities in talking about the Messiah. He said that the world to come is different from the days of the Messiah. The days of the Messiah will be, he says, if a man arises who is very diligent in the study of Torah and who leads his fellow Jews to embrace the Torah and then leads them to the land of Israel, 
helps them fight the battles of God in order to reassert Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel. If that man then helps rebuild the temple and bring all of the people of the world into a kind of peaceful arrangement with the, with the Jewish people and with God, and that they're able to reestablish the, the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews live in peace and independent political sovereignty, then he says, that man is the Messiah. That's what the Messiah looks like. It is perhaps unlikely, but not at all supernatural. And he says, this is different from the world to come. The world to come is something that's acquired through the practice of mitzvot and in the case of someone like Maimonides, the study of philosophical ideas in this world. And then when a person dies, their soul reunites with God and they achieve the world to come. And if we read Maimonides at all carefully, we see that for him, the world to come is achievable without the Messiah. Jewishly, the Messiah is not necessary. But he says it's promised in the traditions of rabbinic Judaism, so it must be part of it. But it's simply something that will happen at some point in the future in a completely mundane way. He says the Messiah will not perform miracles. It's not by the sign of miracles that the Messiah will be marked. Rather, it will be if the Messiah does all those things on that list, then it's the Messiah. And if not, then he's not. So Maimonides was clearly trying to stave off any attempt to embrace an apocalyptic messianic movement. And I think he clearly senses the ways in which such movements are a threat to the fabric of rabbinic Judaism and rabbinic authority. Yes? By his definition, would be Jordan qualify as the Messiah? I mean, it sounds a little bit like it, except that it hasn't ushered in a kind of world peace or the reconstruction of the third, of the third temple. But there are some who, following this, we'll talk about this next time, following this tradition, do want to try to rebuild the temple and see that as an obligation for Jews in bringing in the Messianic era, the, the Yomot HaMashiach, the days of the Messiah, um, which I think also in that case would be unlikely to usher in an era of world peace. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea there is, is one that it understands it as, as this worldly human form of activism, not as an otherworldly miraculous event. And there, I think he's trying to dispel the tensions that messianic movements potentially generate with rabbinic Judaism. But when we see messianic, oh, God, yes. You can finish, and then I'll ask my question. I, I, before I do, I want to hear okay. a question. Go well, ahead. I just find it interesting that the rabbis see messianic Judaism as a threat, because if, as you said earlier, um, the actions of the Jewish people could hasten the coming of the Messiah, then the rabbis could almost be the enablers by leading the people to higher levels of embracing halakha, thereby ushering in the Messiah. So they, yeah, they do, they enable the idea that people should act in that manner in order to help bring about one day, God willing, who knows when, the Messiah. That's very different from then saying, and see Ari Katz over there, he's the Messiah. And then follow, oh, sorry, it was not time, it was not time. It was going to be a Facebook announcement and tweets were going out later. And then, then following him, abrogating the laws of the Torah, so having like, you know, a, a bacon cheeseburger, following Ari Katz to Israel. Vegetarian. Um, yeah, he's, he would be a vegetarian messiah. Right. So that's, 
That's a disappointment. Vegan. And and this this would be a this would be a very different kind of thing because that that's that's a complete break with the whole structure and norms of a rabbinic Jewish society. In fact, it's it's undoing the very fabric of that society. So aspirations to helping to bring the Messiah are very different from embracing a particular person in a particular time and place as though they really are the Messiah. And it's, it's that tension that's interesting to see here. Yes? And I think the tension goes on because the rabbinical authorities who um, embrace the concept and teach the concept of the Messiah in the world to come, but not when it gets away from them where the people actually take it seriously and think that somebody is the Messiah. Um, if the Messiah actually comes, the last people to recognize it are gonna be the rabbis. It, it's, it's in many ways true that the, it's a power that they wish to harness and that in most cases where we see messianic movements arise, that there are sometimes some important rabbis who embrace them, the vast majority of rabbinic authorities oppose them. And they oppose them because in many ways they're among the first to have their authority questioned with the rise of a messianic movement. And they recognize if this movement turns out to fail, which they believe it will, then it's kind of a disaster and it, it could look very bad for them. However, movements are almost unstoppable. They keep happening, they keep popping up everywhere. Um, and much more powerfully than just the Mashiach man of the Western Wall, who I think was a good example of a messianic movement of one. But there, there are many messianic movements involving substantially more people than that. And it, it seems to reflect a dream of a categorically different world, a categorically different life. It evinces a profound dissatisfaction, harboring a, a deep sense of unease with one, one's own historical circumstance and one's own even religious circumstance because it's an aspiration for a different kind of Judaism and not just a different kind of life. And the question then becomes, to whom does that appeal? And that's a much harder question to answer. It's tempting to say people living in abject poverty, uh, people suffering violence. And we do find that people who live in poverty and people who suffer violence do uh, uh, find messianic movements in some moments appealing. But we also find wealthy people who find messianic movements appealing. We find powerful people who find messianic movements appealing. We find people living in stable, nonviolent moments also finding messianic movements appealing. There's a very large messianic movement of sorts in the United States surrounding the Chabad Hasidic movement um, that's very focused on messianic discourse. And in fact, it's become more it has grown, has become larger, and has become um, more vociferous in its messianism as Jewish life in the United States became more and more comfortable. It was not a function of being subject to violence or subject to political tension. Instead, it seems to be something that appeals to some other facet of human aspiration. I think it's much more, it's a much more complex phenomenon than we can simply attribute to historical circumstance, though historical circumstance sometimes gives shape to the kind of messianism we see in any given historical moment. Since both the rich and the poor, both the rabbis and the lay, um, both in moments of peace and moments of catastrophe, all seem to give rise to some kind of messianic movement, that people can have a perception of a dissatisfaction with their reality without that necessarily being what we might call all that dissatisfying. So 
I had a friend who is a, a, a English professor, and she once pointed out, we were talking about messianic movements, and uh, we started talking about Shabtai Tzvi, and she said, well, can you imagine how thrilling that must have been? And I said, yeah, but you know, what do you mean? She said, the thrill to think that the entire biblical legacy and the historical experience of your entire people culminates in this one moment in which you have the privilege to live. Can you imagine thinking that all of the struggles and traumas of history have now ended? And they have ended in the fulfillment of a divine promise that you get to live through and bring to fruition. She said, until it gets messed up, as inevitably all messianic movements do, the, the, the pure heady pleasure of seeing history come to its final culmination, that must have been just absolutely exhilarating. And I thought, yes, I think it must have been. I think in any moment, people are drawn to that. And that what they're drawn to is that experience, rather than just the culmination of it, which at least up to now has always been a disappointment. It's the desire for that feeling that I think powerfully moves messianic movements in Jewish history. But in the case of Shabtai Tzvi, we see something just of a completely different order. Um, in the mid 1600s, there starts to be a lot of rumors about this man, Shabtai. Um, I always think that's interesting. It's my father's Hebrew name, Shabtai. This Shabtai Tzvi out of Izmir. Um, he was born in Smyrna, and of course he was born in Smyrna according to the tradition on the 9th of Av. So he's born off in the Ottoman Empire on the 9th of Av. Why is that interesting if we think back to the last class? The, so it's the, it's the day of the destruction of the temple, and what rabbinic tradition did, was, did we mention last time? I had like 30, so I'm just trying to quiz you and see if you remember. Well, there, there was the one about the Messiah ben Yosef and the Messiah ben David. But if we just think about the question of the, the day the Messiah is born, right, that the Messiah is born on the day of the destruction of the temple. And so there's a question of, is it doesn't mean in every generation the Messiah was born. But clearly the tradition that Shabtai Tzvi was born on the 9th of Av is evocative of this idea. Um, he was a student of Kabbalah. And he uh, also have traditional rabbinic learning, but it seems he had a strong preference for Kabbalah. And he moves to Salonika, um, which at the time for Romano-Greek-speaking Jews, it was in, in Greece. And Salonika actually became such a Jewish city. At, at one point, it was, it was majority Jewish. The majority of the population was Jewish. This was an extremely important site for international trade, and Jews were prominent there. Um, Shabtai Tzvi began to do a lot of weird things, and people notice them. They refer to them as his strange acts. And one that happens, according to tradition in Salonika, is that he marries a Torah scroll. It's not entirely sure what that means. I'm not sure anybody yet knows what that means, but the rabbis of Salonika knew that it meant that he couldn't live in Salonika anymore. <laughs> so he was, he was kicked out of Salonika. Um, and it seems that this, this, the image of this, he was marrying the Torah scroll, like he was marrying the divine presence, uh, was uh, intended to, to anticipate some kind of messianic identity. He also then marries a woman named Sarah, who was um, a survivor, survivor by at least traditional accounts of her, of the Chmielniki riots of 1648, in which some 300,000 Jews were killed in Poland. And uh, she was uh, raised in a convent, it seems, and then she ran away, and she, 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 it seems that she survived as a prostitute. And it's very evocative of the prophet uh, Hosea and the notion of his wife of whoredom. Um, and and Shabtai Tzvi marries her and says that there's a deep 
mystical secret entailed in this. Um, but in 1663, he moves to Jerusalem, and while living in Israel, he meets a man named Nathan of Gaza. And Nathan of Gaza really becomes the champion of Shabtai Tzvi's messianic movement. He's the one who really believes that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. He's the one who really writes most of the um, early texts that describe Shabtai Tzvi as the Messiah and justify his identity as the Messiah. And I think in many respects, we could say that this movement is every bit as much of uh, a movement of Nathan of Gaza as it is a movement of the actual Shabtai Tzvi. And around 1666, Shabtai Tzvi is, via Nathan of Gaza and some of his other supporters, declared to be the Messiah. He's named the Messiah. And here's an example of a passage that's from a flyer, uh, a print flyer that was sent uh, to Jews throughout Europe. Um, this one says, the first begotten son of God, Shabtai Tzvi, Messiah and redeemer of the people of Israel, to all of the sons of Israel, peace be to you. Since you have been deemed worthy to behold the great day and the fulfillment of God's word by the prophets, your lament and sorrow must be changed into joy and your fasting into merriment, for you shall weep no more. Rejoice with song and melody and change the day formerly spent in sadness and sorrow into a day of jubilee, because I have appeared. And there they even argue that the 10th the of Tevet, a fast day that commemorates uh, the siege of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar, should no longer be a fast day, but should rather be a day of celebration because the Messiah has come. And this is one of those examples of the change of the law as being a marker of the arrival of the Messiah. And those who engage in those changes in the law show themselves to be believers in that Messiah. So Shabtai Tzvi then, there were lots of strange acts associated with him. Um, there was the, the Torah marriage, but there was also the, the, his practice of pronouncing the names of God uh, properly as a sort of indicator of the arrival of the, the Messiah. He was also criticized for singing secular songs, um, but there were certain changes in the law, especially food prohibitions, certain types of prohibited fats around the kidneys and other things that are, no, that are not deemed kosher. Uh, he said were, were kosher and encouraged people to eat them. Um, he was also, a tr they said that he would swim nude in the ocean at night. This is something that was said about him. Um, there it, he would swing regularly between periods of great light and periods of great darkness. So they talk about him having these sort of deep depressive moments and then these moments of, of tremendous, I mean, people have speculated whether this is an indication that, that he may have had something like bipolar disorder. Um, and also the, the, the association of like what we often pathologize as mental illness in some moments with certain people can be identified as being very special and very powerful. Something like that seems to be at work with Shabtai Tzvi. Um, and according to others, they, he, that he encouraged the abandonment of other halachot and especially of certain fasts, of fast days. Um, there, there were lots of rumors about sexual impropriety uh, around him, um, but nonetheless, the fame of Shabtai Tzvi spread very, very fast. And we see lots and lots of evidence of people at every level of society, including the wealthy, including many, many important rabbis who thought Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah, and they encouraged their community, the Messiah has come, they should sell their possessions at you know, very low rates, and begin traveling to the land of Israel. People with a lot at stake in the embrace of a Messiah and in the complete disruption of their community, nonetheless believed Messiah, that, that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah and that everyone should start boarding ships to 
move to the Holy Land. There's also ample evidence of this from records, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, there's a Dutch mer merchant who describes the messianic movement around Shabtai Tzvi and says that there's a evidence in Amsterdam of mass prophecy of some 200 people, including children, who suddenly begin to prophesy and to utter psalms in Hebrew, and they also declare Shabtai Tzvi to be the Messiah, and then when they come to their senses again, they claim they can't remember what happened. Mass prophecy is something we actually see in lots of Western traditions, um, and there's an interesting psychological phenomenon at play in this, or at very least, it's a literary trope for talking about a special moment, even if there isn't actual mass prophecy. But these descriptions of tremendous unrest within the Jewish world, we see them in Dutch, we see them in, in Turkish, we see them in English. They're happening everywhere. And it seems that the entire Jewish world is in this moment of upheaval. There are some opponents to Shabtai Tzvi who think he's a great deceiver, who has disturbed the entire house of Israel. And there are his believers, including many important rabbis. And they're going off to the Holy Land. They believe that redemption is at hand. And Shabtai Tzvi also believes redemption is at hand, and so he goes off to meet the Sultan, to meet the Sultan in Turkey in order to be crowned and put in charge of the, the Ottoman forces. Uh, it would seem that that was part of his aspiration. And since that was the authority that was in control of the land of Israel at the time, this was the aspiration. And everyone, his followers, believed that he was going to meet the Sultan and that this would culminate in his ability to, to, to wield power from the Middle East and it would emanate out to the rest of the world. That meeting with the Sultan did not go as planned. <laughs> and in case you don't know the end of the story, he goes in to meet the Sultan, uh, the Jewish messianic hopeful. He comes out a Muslim. Oh. He comes out a Muslim. And in fact, by, by converting to Islam and taking on uh, a Jewish name, a Muslim name, Effendi, he's then actually given a fairly generous stipend from the Sultan and uh, lives in seclusion after that for the rest of his life. This leads to an absolutely cataclysmic rift within the Jewish community. The majority of Shabtai Tzvi's followers go skulking home. They have to go like try to buy their house back, right? It's financially disturbing, but it's also very, very unsettling for rabbinic leadership. How do you go back to your synagogue and be like, okay, folks, so let's talk Shabbos, right? It becomes really, really uncomfortable. And the rabbinic authority was badly damaged through this process. Plus, there were some small number of Jews who converted to Islam with Shabtai Tzvi. They became the donmen. But there were under other Jews, they called them Sabbatians. And they believed that Shabtai Tzvi was indeed the Messiah. They called them crypto-Sabbatians because they secretly believed that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah. And they came up with all kinds of Kabbalistic reasons for this. They say that Shabtai Tzvi was simply trying to elevate the sparks of divine light that are captured in this world. If you remember from the first night when we talked about the Kabbalistic ideas of Isaac Luria, his notion of the shattering of the vessels during the time of creation means that many sparks of light are trapped in this world and they need to be um, elevated 
to be reassimilated into God. And they say what Shabtai Tzvi was doing is he's descending into the depths of transgression. He's even descending into the depths of another religion in order to gather the sparks that are there and to complete his full act of redemption. And so they had a Kabbalistic way of understanding all of Shabtai Tzvi's strange acts, including his conversion, as being in fact part of his messianic his, his messianic agenda and his messianic mission, and that those who have um, denied him merely have misunderstood the real mystery behind his actions. And this led to very bitter disputes that lasted for several generations because there continued to be people who secretly believed Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah, including some important rabbis. And one of the ways you could try to question the authority of a rabbi in, say, the, the, the 18th century was to claim they were, in fact, Sabbatians. This was, this was the, the sort of the ultimate uh, uh, critique of someone. This would be a sign that they were a rabbi who had lost their credentials. But the, the, the tensions within that seem to have unleashed all other kinds of things. There was Jacob Frank and Frankism, where they took the idea of redemption through sin really far, and then all sorts of things were alleged about them which might not even be false, of, of, of orgiastic behavior, of converting to Christianity and Islam, of following Shabtai Tzvi sort of to the very furthest extreme of this notion of redemption through sin. But this rift within Judaism, it was really a, a moment that caused a large portion of the Jewish community to question their place in Jewish history and to question the authority of the rabbinic establishment. Gershom Sholem has argued, and I'm not quite sure how much of this argument of his I, I fully endorse, but he's argued that the ability for Jews to move into modernity 150 or so years later was a process begun with the Kabbalistic messianic movement of Shabtai Tzvi because it led to a community that could question rabbinic authority and could imagine recreating itself in a new fashion, and that Shabtai Tzvi actually enabled Jewish modernity, ironically. Whatever the role that Sabatian has had in the rise of Jewish modernity, I think it's a really interesting cautionary tale about what happens when dreams become erstwhile realities and then turn into disillusionment. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm happy to take whatever questions you have. Um, yes? Could you flesh out the idea of redemption? I, I think my idea of redemption comes from Christianity rather, rather than Judaism since, since yeah. then. So there's, as I mentioned, that last time we talked about um, redemption that's kind of restorative or utopian. And at some level, it involves the return of Jews to the land of Israel, the reestablishment of the kingdom, the kingship of Israel under the line of David, so that the Messiah, the anointed one, will be the anointed king, who will be from the line of David, who will reassert Jewish political autonomy in the land of Israel, gather in all of the exiles from around the world, and rebuild the temple. So that's the basic sort of questions of redemption, but in some cases this is also accompanied by a more utopian or apocalyptic notion of great wars being necessary in order to bring about redemption, and that that final redemption will be a miraculous transformation in the fabric of reality itself. And there's a, there's a lot of different ideas about redemption 
from the more apocalyptic to the more mundane and restorative in the rabbinic tradition, and, and messianic movements draw on those ideas. Thank you. Uh, yes? Going back now to before you started talking about Shabtai Zvi, and you're talking about the rabbis kind of distancing themselves from the, the messianic uh, concept by saying it's in the future. It, it seems to be just endemic to Judaism that we cannot disclaim any of the concepts that get put into scripture, whether it be the Torah, whether it be the Talmud, uh, or other forms of scripture, that instead, we, we instead of disclaiming, we still embrace, but we reinterpret or we develop workarounds. And um, it seems to me that this is just another example of that. The Messiah, which arguably isn't part of the original Torah, becomes part of scripture at some point, ushered in by the rabbis. There must have been a reason, a compelling reason, that the notion of the Messiah became part of Judaism, a fundamental part of Judaism, you know, Pharisaic, and, and rabbinic Judaism. And then there must have been something, because I don't think at that time, when it became part, they distanced themselves. It was important, there was a reason for it. There must have been something that came afterwards that caused them to say, now we need a workaround. Now we need to come up with another concept because what we thought was a great thing, you know, and put into our, our, our belief system doesn't quite work out the way we want. Do you know or have an idea what it was that caused the need for the workaround? What event? Was it Jesus? Was it something else? I think it's already there. There's no question that the rabbis in the Gemara already have a tradition that they can't deny, which is the notion of the promised, even the biblical notion of the, the promised messianic redeemer. Um, except for Hillel, who could say, yeah, and it already happened. But th that's already present. And, and you're right, they do often have a reapplication of the law in order to get around things that make them uncomfortable. So the rabbis in the, in the Talmud were very uncomfortable, for instance, with using capital punishment as a way of punishing um, marital infidelity. And so they say, yes, you know, this is the law, and here's the conditions under which you can create a capital case around an act of, of, of marital infidelity, and the conditions are just completely impossible um, to, to fulfill. I won't get into them, because they're like X-rated, but they're, they're almost impossible to fulfill. So the, it's their way of getting around ever having to use the death penalty, which even at that case was a, a, a theoretical concern, since they didn't have the, the political ability to utilize the death penalty, but that this was their way of getting around that. Um, I think that already in the Talmud, they recognize that messianic movements that are unsuccessful are terribly, terribly damaging. And you could argue that the apocalyptic conceptions of the Messiah also are trying to dispel some of the tensions around ushering in a Messiah and then transforming the Torah. Because if you have to wait for the sun to shine seven times brighter, and you have to wait for a new Jerusalem to descend from heaven, and you have to wait for all these miraculous things to happen, then that means that in the meantime, you keep observing the Torah. Whereas the more activist conception of the Messiah that says, yes, you, you can create the messianic moment if only you really reach out and try to do it, is potentially more disruptive. 
but it was the it was the very nature of messianism itself that I think the rabbis recognized was potentially constructive because it gives hope and potentially destructive because it leads to a change in Judaism and, and that was a tension for them to, to have to navigate. You don't think it was Bar Kokhba that led to the need to distance? There's no question that that was a real example. That was an instructive example of this phenomenon, of this problem, and they were conscious of that. But the, the, the nature of the rabbinic traditions about messianism, I think do, and here I think Gershom Sholem's totally right, it reflects a tension between the true dream of, of messianic realization and the steady sort of day-to-day uh, uh, -day life of a rabbinic Jewish community. It's, I mean, I think that's why Ari Katz's rabbis didn't teach him about messianism, right? They, 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 wanted, they wanted Jewish kids to go to good colleges and marry other Jewish kids and join the shul, right? They, they wanted a, a more, is that a fair characterization? They, they wanted a, a community that could, that could continue in a stable way. And too much messianism will lead to tremendous instability just by virtue of the nature of messianism itself. Uh, yes, Ms. Wilmer. Uh, oh. I was calling on your wife. <laughs> uh, if I remember my high school, the, the conversion wasn't a choice. Either he will be killed or convert to, uh, to Islam. Uh, with with uh, Shabtai Tzvi? It's probably the case that he was given a choice uh, that he couldn't refuse, right? That he was death by some form of so trial or conversion. The, the Messianic drove in there, but the choice, like, the other thing, if what I remember from school, every appearance of a Messiah had to do with the bad time that the Jewish people went through. It we was don't a reflection, that's what I remember from high school. Yeah. That's the reflection that was like Chalmanitsky's time and other things, unfortunately, that we had in our uh, history. So it is true that the Shabtai Tzvi was um, probably threatened with death if he didn't comply with the offer for conversion. Um, but either way, it was tremendously disappointing. And so the, his followers who still believed he was the Messiah had to imagine that this was part of his plan. And that's how it was Kabbalistically reinterpreted. That's why they reinterpreted it, because they still thought he was the Messiah. And no part of the rabbinic tradition about the Messiah suggests that conversion to Islam is part of that process. Um, in terms of the messianic movements correlating with historically traumatic moments, there we really do, the historical record seems to imply that there we see it's, it's, it's really sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, even the, the movement around Shabtai Tzvi probably wasn't uh, related to the Khmelnyky riots directly because it happens decades later and it's not particularly in Poland where it originates, it's, it's uh, from other parts of the world. Um, Yemenite Jews who weren't directly affected by the violence in Poland were big advocates of Shabtai Tzvi. So there, there was something else at play there. And many, many Jewish people who had not just suffered an immediate violent trauma were supporters of Shabtai Tzvi. There, there's something more complicated than merely reaction to violent trauma that gives rise to messianic movements. It's, it's part of the nature of rabbinic Judaism itself. And I think it's a, it's a very ironic part, given the tensions between messianism and rabbinic Jewish life. Yes. So, how do these messianic movements 
Um, before or after the big disappointment that always comes at the end? So before, it feels like an exhilarating rush of divine promises fulfilled. And after, either they would have to find some way of um, imagining that the Messiah is really the Messiah despite some kind of failure to fulfill the promise, or it leads to moments of tremendous disillusionment. There, there, people have suggested that there were um, Jews who converted to Christianity after uh, the Sabatian movement because of how disappointing it was. Um, it, it leads to crisis in authority. Uh, it leads to all kinds of problems. So these are typically fiascos in the end, and it, it seems that people are um, affected by them and not usually in good ways. Yes? I'm a little confused from last week's lecture. I got the sense that, at least at the beginning, apocalyptic view of Messianism entailed military and political upheaval and changes that then um, lifted the Jews up into prominence and independence and freedom and, and this wonderful uh, ability to live as Jews. And then there seemed to be some type of a shifting where apocalyptic messianism necessitated a rejection of halakhic law and, and Judaism as we know it. And I'm not sure why and how that happened. And if all apocalyptic messianic visions necessarily entailed a rejection of, of Judaism as we know it and as following the rules in the scripture as we know it, and why that happened. So there, it, it is an element of what's in the rabbinic tradition. I remember last time we talked about the idea that the chazir, like that, that, that pork, actually it comes from the word chazir, which sounds like lachzor, to return, and that this is, it will return to uh, being a permitted meat to Jews in the time of messianic redemption, or that they'll eat the leviathan and the behemoth, I don't know if those are kosher animals, um, but that there will be some kind of shift in the nature of the Torah. But after medieval interpretations of this, it was understood somewhat um, more extreme, in more extreme ways as um, a categorical shift in the nature of halakha itself, and that became more encoded into being part of the notion of messianic redemption. Although we can see from um, Christological movements in the ancient world, though not universally at first, it over time became understood as part of the notion of the arrival of the Messiah that the law no longer applied in the way the rabbis understood it. Um, so it, it definitely moves in that direction. And why is that? Because people wanted to eat pork, or people were sick of following rules, or yeah. people needed, it, it had to be so intense and so... Uh, and why extract that particular strand out of the, the many pieces in the biblical and the rabbinic lineage? I, it seems that it's, it's a fact that people did that, so what we draw from that is that there is this element of wishing to imagine and then to bring about a completely different reality, including a completely different Jewish reality. You have to reject what you have in order to embrace or obtain what you want. Because it's a transformation. It's an, a complete and utter transformation into a new era, but one that is different in every respect. Um, and that these are, the seeds of that are already present within normative rabbinic society. 
And, and this Gershom Scholem's sort of argument that this was an important part of Jewish history, whether or not it gives rise to the Jewish embrace of modernity, I don't know. But the fact that that appears to be there, that within even some of the elite sectors of, of rabbinic halachic communities, that there is this dream for the total transformation, including a transformation of the halachic system, seems to be a part of what is happening under the surface, and it's revealed in the moments of messianic movements. Yes? Has anybody done an analysis of mass hysteria in relationship to these, particularly Shabtai Svi? People have speculated that um, <clears throat> Messianic movements are always a form of mass hysteria, and that when we see associated with this things like um, communal uh, forms of prophecy, that that's reflective of a kind of mass hysteria. Um, at, at some level, I wonder if, 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 if that's just another word for thinking about a disruptive social movement. Because no, you do find, for instance, I hate to say, but Hitler's appeal and the mass hysteria that occurred, the, the uh, what do you call witchcraft trials in New England mm -hmm. uh, in, during colonial times. I mean, these are forms where there's, the thinking is so outlandish and people, masses, are able to, this stuff is able to be put into their, their souls, into their being. And of course, the more people who embrace such ideas at one time, yes. the more viable they start to feel. And I think that that's, that's just a part of how disruptive social movements happen. And though I'm sure there's some element of a psychological process happening there, I'm a little reluctant to pathologize it too much. I think that the evidence simply suggests that this happens over the course of human history. And it's, a, it's an interesting and, and I think important phenomenon to, to be aware of, but it's one that has real implications in, in, in the, certainly in the historical experience of, 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 of Jews. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Who, who did I miss? You. Are yeah. there still members of the Doma, the Sabbateans, and the Frankists out there that still exist, or did they die out? No, in small numbers, they're still there. There still are Sabbateans, and there are something like the Doma um, in Turkey. And so the, the, these, these groups are there, but in small numbers, and they're no longer a really significant historical force in the same way that they were, for instance, uh, 50 or 75 years uh, after the, the, the moment of the Sabatian movement itself. Um, yeah. So what was different about either the time, place, or people that allowed Jesus to kind of, you know, be considered, you know, to, to develop this following that gave, you know, birth to a whole religion as compared to, you know, we don't have the followers of, of Yohanan ben Zakkai or, or um, Shabtai Tzvi or, you know, why did those fail and this other one succeed? There, I mean, there was a different historical moment for sure um, and different strategies at play in terms of how the movement around Jesus was understood and the kinds of literature that are produced from it. Like, there's, the, there's a lot of, I think, historical differences and a different landscape in which that happens. Um, the Sabatian movement creates a kind of religious identity that's actually not as sustainable because it's this notion, first of all, it had to be kept largely secret uh, if it happens within Jewish communities 
or within the Muslim community. In both cases, it had to be a subterranean movement. Um, and it, the longer it goes on, the, more, the less viable it starts to look when they claim that Shabtai Tzvi will truly be redeemed, like revealed as the, the Messiah of Judaism, because I mean, he, 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 he dies and the movement goes into second and third and fourth generation and gets smaller as it goes along. So it has, um, on the, own, uh, the terms that it sets out for itself, it has less viability over time, I think. Um, do we have time for another question? Or? We'll do one more question. Okay. Yes, Mr. Uh, I think uh, this relates to the beginning of your talk and finding uh, sources, biblical sources for messianism. One of the big sources will be Isaiah II. Yes. Because all that text that is there, why not accept a pshat interpretation? There was this guy sitting in the Galut in ba Babylonia. The people are in terrible shape, uh, uh, socially, mentally, emotionally, and all he does, he wants to comfort them down. Why take that text and make of it, uh, what we say, a big timus? <laughs> So why, why not have a more literal interpretation of Isaiah uh, where this could be understood as a text articulating the consolation of the people of Israel? Beautiful. And uh, that does seem like an easy solution, and yet that is not the history of Messianic discourse in Rabbinic Judaism. I think there's something more powerful about the mix of ideas that emerge not just from Isaiah, but from other pa passages about the apocalyptic day of the Lord, and then the rabbinic traditions about the Messiah as well. Um, the hopefulness and even the excitement about Jewish experience that happens when Jewish history is read in light of this secret development towards a culmination of messianic redemption has a certain historical utility in Jewish communities. It helps people feel like their religious life is meaningful and is actually being played out in the historical experiences that they're going through. But then within that, it almost impossible to disassociate from that are the disruptive elements of it that give rise to ultimately disappointing messianic movements that, that really shake the, the, the stability of Jewish communities. And this is one of those ironies of, of Jewish history itself. Because you have Jeremiah is doing the same thing. And, and uh, only Yechezkel, who is a little, uh, the rabbi said of Ben Ben he was a, a little, a little uh, Kohen, not a, an important one. Stuff always gets more interesting <laughs> the more you get towards uh, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, but the, uh, the the, I think that the desire to transform the idea of the consolation being you know, promised to the people of Israel by restoring their, them to their land, and then imagining this as part of a process in the like, subterranean fabric of Jewish history, uh, the temptation for that is too great because it has usefulness and it also has danger. So a uh, question for you. The only contemporary Messianic form of Judaism that I know of that most of us know of is, is, uh, is Hasidism, and particularly with the Rebbe and Chabad. Um, there are some fringe groups here about trying to rebuild the temple, though I don't know if they're messianic or trying to create other political issues in Israel. So from, a, from, a, from what you know about the Hasidic view, and I think it's only Chabad, but maybe the other closer, closed off Hasidic views have the same view, 
what kind of um, messianism are they practicing, those who um, are looking at messianity? Are they uh, apocalyptic or are they restorative? It will depend on which messianic movement you're talking Chabad, about. Chabad and the one we know about. I, I mean, there's, there's, Chabad's really complicated, so we'll talk about that next week. Um, and, and there, there's, it's not your typical, that's such an atypical, atypical case. We'll, we'll have to, it's, it's, we'll talk about it next time. It's somewhat restorative, but it's actually also somewhat apocalyptic, but not in a traditional way. Um, and those movements are quite the same. Chabad is closer where you've had a moment of saying, this person is the Messiah. And then there was a sort of a split between who believes he's really the Messiah and who believes he, he will be, but not yet. Um, and then other movements that move in the direction of anticipating the imminent arrival of the Messiah, but they don't quite get all the way to the point of saying, and this person is the Messiah, and we are now living in the days of the Messiah with all of the things that that implies. They'll move in that direction, but they don't go all the way that, you know, to that point the way we see with, say, the movement around Shabtai Tzvi. And that creates a, a difference. Um, but one that shows that messianic tensions are no less valuable to people in the, in the modern and contemporary world. Doesn't answer my question, but I guess... It does, we'll, we'll talk about it next week <laughs> for right, the details. Stay tuned.